Well, we actually have been in a sermon series, um, and I'm diverging a little bit because we're not in Matthew, we're going to be in John, but we've been taking the sermon series this fall, the words of Jesus to the wounded and weary, take heart. And I love this concept of the wounded and weary because I feel like almost all of us are either wounded or weary or both. And so this has been a great series. I know Bill and I have gotten so much out of it. It sparked so many wonderful conversations after these sermons. So today we're going to be looking at John 4, living water for thirsty souls. And I brought up here a red cup, which, as Aaron said, I've worked 32 years for InterVarsity on college campuses. And this is the symbol of party life on college campuses, the red solo cup. So a number of years ago, InterVarsity had this interactive proxy station. They had these actually all over the country. And they had a big poster up. And the poster had a picture of this red cup. And underneath the poster were the words, what are you thirsty for? What are you thirsty for? And the idea was that students would interact on this public board. They would go and write things. What are you thirsty for? And it was really interesting to see what all they would write. Um, some of them were hilariously funny. Um, some of them honestly made me have a tear in my eye. They were, some of them were very heartrending. But they fell into basically four categories. It was interesting what students were thirsty for. Because I think this idea of spiritual thirst gives us a way to think about our deep longings. Like when we peel back the busyness of our life and we dig down, underneath we have these yearnings, these longings. And I think part of what it means to be human is to have these longings. But the students, their, um, their thirsts fell into kind of four categories. The first one was love. A lot of people said, I wish I had a love that would last a lifetime. Somebody that knew me completely and loved me, and it would last for a lifetime, not a, something that would be over. A number of them also talked about significance. They wanted to have a life that counted. They wanted to have a life of impact. Some even wrote things like, I'd love to make a scientific discovery in the medical world that would solve a medical problem. But they were looking for impact and significance. Others of them said something about security. They wanted to find something in life they could hang on to, an anchor that would hold them steady in a chaotic world. And then there were some that were all about adventure. They wanted to bust out of boring and have a life of experience of thrill and adventure. Last night, Bill and I were talking at dinner, and we were saying, what if we were 18 and we had been on campus? Like, what would we have written on that proxy board? And so we began talking about that. So you need to understand that we went to the University of Illinois. Neither one of us were Christians. We both came to campus as partiers. Bill joined a fraternity. I joined a sorority. We were not looking for God. We were looking for fun. But in my 18-year-old self, I thought, what would I have written on that board? What are you thirsty for? And to understand my background, I grew up in Evanston and then Northbrook. Um, my dad was a businessman. And he dealt with a lot of anxiety and self-medicated with martinis. And my mom was a professional dancer. And so um, in my family, there was a great emphasis on appearance. How you looked really mattered. Then I go to college and I join a sorority that only reinforces this emphasis on outward appearance. So honestly, when I was a freshman and sophomore in college, I was dealing with an eating disorder. I would feel all this anxiety. And that would cause me to binge and eat a crazy amount of food. And then I would feel all this self-hate and remorse. And I remember trying to go in and make myself throw up in the sorority um, bathroom, which I never could. 
So I guess you could say I was an unsuccessful bulimic. I could do the binge part. I couldn't do the purge part. So the next day, I would, you know, hate myself. I would eat a hard-boiled egg and run two miles because I just thought, in the back of my mind was this feeling of, if I could just be pretty enough, then someone would love me. That was the narrative I'd grown up with, and that was the narrative I was living with. But I would say that is one of the many things that Jesus healed in my life. I remember coming to faith my sophomore year, just feeling like there's got to be more to, fit, to life than parties and bars and, you know, dates and whatever. There has to be more. I came to faith in Jesus my sophomore year, and God began to heal this place in my life. I began to realize that God loved me completely just as I was. I didn't have to look a certain way to have God's love. I began to rest in God's love and grow in the scriptures. That was such a profoundly powerful time in my life. Bill had a similar conversion at the University of Illinois. But going back to these longings, I feel like much of my life in your life is spent chasing down these deep longings. I really believe these longings are put into us by God. He hardwired us to long for love, significance, security, and adventure. But I also believe that these deep longings can only be satisfied when we connect with the God who made us and we begin to unfold the plans he has for us. That's how we fulfill these longings. So this morning, I want to talk, look at a text in the Bible that actually deals with longings and human thirst. John chapter 4. This is my favorite text in the Bible. When I would speak for InterVarsity for 32 years, I'd go to campuses and speak. If they didn't give me an assigned topic, an assigned passage, I would almost always talk on this particular passage. I chose that because this one story about Jesus gives us such a vivid picture of who Jesus is. It encapsulates so much of what I love about Jesus. John 4 was read to you today, and a little background information. Jesus is taking a road trip with his disciples. They're traveling by foot into a neighborhood they probably had never been in before, a little town in Samaria. Bitter hostility existed between the Jews, that would be Jesus and his disciples, and the Samaritan people. Samaritans were a mixed race made up of Jews who had intermarried with Gentiles. Jews considered these people to be half-breeds and inferiors. When Jewish people traveled in the area near Samaria, they usually would take the long way around to avoid coming in contact with these unclean people. So let me see if this morning I can pull out for you four things I think we can learn about Jesus. Number one, Jesus was directed and empowered by God. Earlier in the text, it was in your bulletin, I don't know if it was read today, but the text says, and he, Jesus, has to had to pass through Samaria. We say, really? He had to pass through Samaria? We expect Jesus to go around Samaria. But you see, this is a divine imperative. All that Jesus did and said was directed by God, his heavenly Father. Day by day, Jesus would disengage from people, the disciples even in the crowds, and get alone with his Father. In that time, he would enjoy sacred companionship. But he also got his marching orders, his directives for how to spend his day. His life at every point was directed and empowered by God. What a paradox. The great strength and courage of Jesus is found in his utter dependence on God the Father. 
Are you and I that dependent? Sure, we may check in with God on those big decisions, but are we moment by moment dependent on God? We see in Jesus a life of one who is moment by moment directed and empowered by God. The second thing I think we can see is that Jesus reaches out to people in love. He pursues people. He takes the initiative. In this text, we see that Jesus' love for people causes him to blow off some man-made rules. Jesus refuses to comply with the existing religious Jewish establishment. And he, in this account, he blows off some rules. Here's some rules. Number one, he's willing to go to Samaria and spend two days with these unclean people. He even drinks from a cup that this woman drinks from, something religious Jews would think would render him ceremonially unclean. But Jesus knows that contamination does not come from a cup. It does not come from a people group. He's willing to drink out of her cup. And this willingness, by the way, is the first tip-off for this woman that Jesus is no ordinary man. Jesus is also willing to break the gender barrier. Godly, religious men avoided talking to women other than their wives for fear of falling into sexual sin. The text says, just then the disciples came back. They marveled that he was talking to a woman. So the disciples experienced a double shock. They're going to Samaria. They're talking to people in Samaria. And he's talking to a woman. And also, Jesus was not afraid to interact with a woman who was sexually promiscuous. Jesus had the eyes to look beneath the surface of this woman's life and see that her serial lovers, this string of men in her life, was really a quest for love. He knew she was spiritually hungry, and he wanted to offer her living water. His love for people, his love for this woman, caused him to blow off man-made rules and reach out in love. Do you and I consider any people off-limits? Are there any people that are off-limits you think they're outside the love of God, they're outside the reach of God? We learn there are no off-limits people in the kingdom of God. Jesus teaches us to move towards people, all people, in love. When I was doing student ministry for InterVarsity, many of my Christian workers on campus considered Greek students, people in fraternities and sororities, off-limits. They were the off-limits people. I even one time found a prayer map and I discovered that they would pray for a dorm, walk silently past a fraternity, pray for a sorority, walk pilotly, I'm sorry, they would pray for a dorm, walk past the fraternity, pray for the dorm, and walk past the sorority. They weren't even praying for the Greek houses. So when I found that out, I asked my fellow Christians, could we please pray for the Greek houses? God wants to work there too. Those people are spiritually hungry. So this is part of the reason why me and a couple of other people started Greek university. We knew that underneath all the partying, all the bravo, people were longing for something more. Bill and I knew that because we were those people decades earlier. We were those people in the bars partying, but hungry for something more. I love this quote by Dane Ortland in a book called Gentle and Lowly. This is a great book, Making the Rounds. Here's what he says. Time and time again, it's the morally disgusting, the socially reviled, the inexcusable and undeserving who do not simply receive Christ's mercy, but to whom Christ most naturally gravitates. 
He is, by his enemy's testimony, a friend of sinners. Down the page, he goes on to say, the dominant note left ringing in our ears after reading the Gospels, the most vivid and arresting elements of the portrait, is the way the Holy Son of God moves towards, touches, heals, embraces, and forgives those who least deserve it and yet truly desire it. Jesus moves towards people in love. You and I are called to emulate that and move towards people in love. Number three, Jesus offers this woman living water for her thirsty soul. Jesus disarms this woman by asking her for a drink of water. He puts himself at her mercy. He's thirsty. She has water. She's shocked that he would be willing to drink from the same cup and become ceremonially unclean. As I said before, this was her first tip-off that Jesus is a very unusual Jewish man. Jesus awakens this woman's curiosity. He uses the idea of the woman's thirst for physical water, one of the most basic of human needs, to bridge to the topic of spiritual needs. As people, we often are aware of our physical needs. We feel tired, we feel thirsty, we feel hungry, but sometimes we're clueless about the needs of our soul. So Jesus says to her, everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks of the water I give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. She bites. She says, sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. Jesus is using water as a spiritual metaphor to talk to her about a gift from God that would satisfy her thirsty soul. Jesus is inviting her into a transforming relationship. So Jesus says to her, go, call your husband and come here. She replies, I have no husband. And then Jesus, this out-of-town stranger, somehow knows all about her personal life. He says, you are right in saying I have no husband, or you have had five husbands, and the one you now have is not your husband. What you have said is true. Why does Jesus do this? Why does he put a floodlight on this area of shame and guilt in her life? You know what I believe? I believe God's love does not sweep the ugly truth of our guilt and shame under the rug. Remember, Jesus died on the cross to take away our guilt and our shame. He wants to liberate her from that. Grace and truth go hand in hand. God's love does not sweep the ugly truth under the rug. It deals with it. I also think he wants her to know this. I think he's basically saying to her, I know all your junk. I know your failings. I know your brokenness. I know all about you. And yet I am pursuing you in a holy love. You see, many people live with the fear of, if you knew the junk about me, if you knew my secrets, if you knew my shame, would you want to be in a relationship with me? Would you want to draw close to me? People, we live in that kind of fear. I think what Jesus wants to do is to smash that fear and say, I know your junk. I came to heal you, forgive you, and cleanse you. I'm pursuing you in holy love. So when Jesus, this out-of-town stranger, knows all about her personal life, she says, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. This conversation's getting just a little too personal, a little too close. So the woman shifts to theology. 
She wants to engage Jesus in a debate about the proper place of worship. But as they continue talking, Jesus clearly declares himself to be the Messiah. The woman says, I know that Messiah is coming. When he comes, he will tell us all things. Then Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. This is the first time that Jesus clearly stated to any human being that he was, in fact, the Messiah, the long-awaited one. I find that profoundly moving to think this woman, she was the first ears that heard this self-declaration of who Jesus is. You see, other men had seen her sexual potential. Jesus saw her spiritual potential. He engages her in a lofty theological discussion. In an era when women were not educated, they were not thought to be worthy of education or capable of education, this dialogue with Jesus would have been life-changing. He trusted her with big stuff. No man had treated her the way Jesus treated her. Jesus treated her with respect, dignity, compassion, and holy love. And lastly, number four, Jesus gives us a new identity of who we can become. He has a big view of who we can become. He gives this woman a new identity. Interestingly, the story opens with the woman alone at the well. The author John tells us it's the sixth hour or noon. And you say to yourself, why does he include the detail of the time? Who cares what time it is? Here's why. Water was typically drawn by women in the cool of the morning or the cool of the evening in this desert region. The town well was something like a local Starbucks or a coffee shop in that it was a place of socializing and friendly chatter. The fact that this woman is alone at the well at noon, we are led to understand that she is a social outcast. She is a marginalized person. She doesn't hang with the other women in the city there. Frankly, she was notorious for being promiscuous. She's the kind of woman you don't want your husband talking to at the neighborhood party. But Jesus does not talk to her about her spiritual life and tell her to stay out of trouble and fly under the radar screen. Instead, he commissions her to become, tell the good news to her little town. The text says, so the woman left her water jar and went away into town and said to the people, come, see a man who told me everything I ever did. Can this be the Christ? And they went out of the town and were coming to him. Later, the townspeople said, it is no longer because what you have said that we believe, for we have heard for ourselves, and we know that this is indeed the Savior of the world. At the beginning of the story, she's alone at the well. She's a social outcast. She's isolated. She's the object of shame. But at the end of the story, she's action central. She's the center of the social buzz. She has a new identity. She's Jesus' PR agent. Usually, spokespeople are people we emulate, we want to admire. I love the fact that Jesus chose this woman to be his PR agent. He not only forgave her and satisfied the deepest longings of her soul, but he gave her a new identity. Bill and I have often said that the greatest joy of spending a lifetime in ministry is having a front row seat to see the transformation of people. My mind and Bill's mind is a catalog of hundreds of people who have been changed by Jesus. I think of one guy, I'll call him Jason. 
He was a bouncer at a bar in University of Illinois. He was on, worked at a campus bar as a bouncer. He started kind of just dropping into our meetings, our Christian meetings. He was in a fraternity and kind of felt a kinship with Greek and a varsity. Anyway, he ended up coming to our meetings. He ended up becoming a Christian. When he graduated from college, he became a youth pastor. And I remember saying to him, Jason, all those hours you spent working as a bouncer at a bar, that was God's preparation for you to become a youth pastor. <laughs> Another story of transformation. I'll call this woman Jennifer. That's not a real name. I'll call her Jennifer. But a number of years ago, I was speaking actually on this exact same passage, John 4. And as I was speaking, I noticed in the front row there was a woman I'd never seen before. It was her first time there. She'd been brought there by her sorority sister. After I spoke and was, the meeting was over, she came up and introduced herself to me, and she said, Mindy, I understand that you, you meet with college students and you study the Bible and talk with them about things in their life. Would you be willing to meet with me? I said, oh, sure, I'd love to meet with you. So we began weekly meetings, and we studied Scripture, and we talked about all that was going on in her life. She was not a Christian, but she was very spiritually hungry. She was also from a very broken family. Um, her dad had been married three times, divorced three times, was living with another woman. Her mom had been married and divorced three times. And Jennifer one time told me, you and Bill are the only older people I know who are still married to their original partner. She was working two jobs. She was working as a shot girl at Joe's Bar, and she was also working at Hooters. And she was completely paying all of her expenses. She paid for college, books, sorority fees, everything, her car payment, everything. If I were to describe Jennifer in one word, the word would be exhausted. She was just exhausted from working two jobs, going to school, and being involved in a sorority. But as we were meeting together and I was sharing with her about God, at one point I said, do you know you have a father in heaven who loves you and will take care of you? And she said, no. No one has ever given me anything. My dad makes good money, so I don't qualify for any student aid or loans, but nobody gives me anything. I've never gotten anything. I am completely on my own financially and in every other way. I got to paddle my own canoe in life. So we continued to meet and study scripture. At one of our meetings, she came and told me, she said, I can't believe it. My computer died. It's beyond repair. It's a mess. And she says, I don't know what I'm going to do. I don't have the money to buy a new computer. And I said, Jennifer, why don't we pray about that? Why don't we ask God to help you and provide you with a computer? She tapped her foot, rolled her eyes. I said, come on, you've got nothing to lose. She goes, all right, we'll pray. So she and I prayed that God would show up and, you know, give her a computer somehow and help her. I remember leaving the coffee shop that day saying, Lord, I wish I was rich. I wish I could have the money to buy our computer, but we're pretty broke. We got kids in college. We don't have any money. But would you show up, God? Anyway, it was not long after that that she came to a meeting with me, and she had this kind of quirky little smile on her face. I said, what's up? She goes, well, you're not going to believe what happened. My mom wanted me to go with her to a family reunion. I frankly hate my mom's family, but I went with her to be nice. So I go to this family reunion with my mom, and I run into this uncle I haven't seen in 10 years. And he says to me, hey, Jennifer, I heard you're in college now. Is that right? She goes, yeah, I'm a student at the University of Illinois. He goes, oh. He said, I just started a brand new job, and my brand new job gave me a new computer. But I had just bought a computer a few months ago. I thought, maybe if you're in college, you might have use for my computer. I don't need two. And she said, 
I was flabbergasted when my uncle told me that. And then I told my uncle, I, I prayed about this. Then my uncle was really freaked out. She said, but then she said to me in the coffee shop, she said, so I have this brand new computer. She says, I do have a father in heaven, heaven who loves me and will take care of me. You know, this is a story not about a young woman who needed a computer. It's a story about a young woman who needed to know that there was a God in heaven who loved her and would take care of her. She ended up giving her life to Christ, and she ended up growing in her faith and just flourishing in her faith. All this happened in Champaign-Urbana. So by God's providence, a few years later, she was living in Chicago, as Bill and I were living in Chicago, and our lives intersected again. She was going to the same church, Park Community Church, that Bill and I were going to at the time, and she was part of the premarital class. She was engaged to this guy, so Bill and I were able to meet with her fiancé and help them start to build a solid marriage on the foundation of Christ as we did their premarital counseling. Today, this woman is married. She has a couple kids, and guess what? She's a pastor of a church out in the Chicago suburbs. So here she was working at Joe's Bar, Hooters, and now she's Pastor Jennifer working at a church in the suburbs. I love this story of transformation. As we close this time that I have with you, I just want to invite you to think about what is God's invitation to you? How might the story of the woman at the well or the story of the bouncer, Jason, or the story of Jennifer, how might this intersect with your life? Maybe you feel like you've made some bad choices. Maybe you feel like if God knew the junk about me, would he want to be in a relationship with me? I can assure you God knows the junk about you. And yes, he wants to be in a relationship with you. As I said, Jesus moves towards people in love. He loves to come to the aid of broken people. And remember, this is why Jesus died. Jesus died on the cross to connect us, broken, imperfect people, with a holy God. That was the good news that I heard for the first time as a college student. But that might be the good news for you. Perhaps God's invitation to you is to move towards someone in love. Is there someone you've been avoiding? Maybe somebody at the office and you're taking the long way around so you don't have to pass that someone's desk. Maybe there's a family member you've been holding at arm's length and God is inviting you to move towards them in love. As you remember, there are no off-limits people. God calls us to move towards people in love. Maybe God's invitation to you is to have the eyes of Jesus to see that people all around you who maybe are far from God and seem spiritually aloof, that they are really hungry and need a listening ear. Eight to go, days ago, Bill and I were at our block party. So picture the scene. This is a block party in Chicago. You got the brats and the burgers sizzling on the grill. You got the keg of beer flowing. You got really loud music, people talking and milling around. At that block party, three different people pulled me aside and poured out to me a problem they were dealing with. They just needed a listening ear, someone who would hear their story. Maybe God's invitation to you is to be that someone who says, I'm going to move towards people in love. I'm going to be that listening ear for people who are hurting. Maybe you feel like you need a new identity. Maybe God's invitation to you is to say, come to me, and I will give you a new identity. The bouncer that became a youth pastor, the woman at Hooters that became a pastor. God can give you a new identity. God can heal your broken places. Let me close in prayer. Lord, I thank you so much for this account of this woman at the well. Lord, I love 
how this one account encapsulates so much of what I love about you. I thank you that you move towards broken people. Lord, I thank you that you love us in our broken state. And Lord, I thank you that you don't leave us there, but you cleanse us. You give us refreshing living water, and you give us a new identity. You want us to be part of your kingdom work. Lord, I pray for everyone in this room that you might meet them. Lord, you know their story. You know their joys, their heartaches. I pray that you would meet them at their point of need, and they might find in you the Savior that we are all hungry for. Pray this in Christ's name. Amen.